We will be in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, and most of chapter 6 tonight. If you'd like to open up and turn there. Father, thank you so much for your word to guide us and for the precious truth that's found here. And truly, Father, we thank you for the message of your love tonight. I am just so thrilled, Father, by this song. And more thrilled, Lord, that you chose to have this placed in Scripture. It's amazing, Father, after all of the history that we've covered and all the, all the teaching and the law and the humanity and struggles of the wisdom literature to come out on this side of it all with this love song. It's truly remarkable to us. And we are in awe before you. And truly, Jesus, you are wonderful. Pray that you give us ears to hear tonight what your Spirit is saying to our fellowship. May we hear clearly. And may our hearts be drawn ever closer to you. We realize that is the purpose of this song. To woo and lure and draw and allure us to you, Father. Pray that you'd have your perfect way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the 1970s, Paul McCartney, after being accused of breaking up the Beatles received a lot of flack. You know, when he went out on his own and began writing his own songs and doing his own thing, he got a lot of flack for it. And the flack had to do with uh, being called a lightweight. You know, John Lennon especially accused him of being a lightweight songwriter. And so his response to that, to the critics and to John Lennon and to others saying, you're just a lightweight, you don't really know what you're doing, in 1976... He released a song which was his response to those who accused him of being a lightweight. The song was called Silly Love Song. Remember that song? You think that people would have had enough of silly love songs? I look around me and I see it isn't so. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs, he's saying. What's wrong with that? I'd like to know. So here I go again. And the whole chorus of the song was, I love you. You know, and, all, and it's kind of a disco-y sound and everything. It went on to be number one on the Billboard Top 100 of that year. Number one hit song. In 2008, it was declared number 31 on Billboard's greatest songs of all time. This silly love song. Apparently, people still love a good love song. And I think part of what draws us and attracts us to the song of songs is that truly that's what we're singing, what we're reading, what we're studying and looking at here is a love song. Some might say a silly love song in the middle of Scripture. Let's get on to the heavy-duty prophets and let's go back and study the law or let's move on to the New Testament and things that are meaty and, and, and you know impactful in our lives. And, and I say, some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. What's wrong with that? I'd like to know. So here I go again. In the Song of Songs, we come across this remarkable, beautiful, I think the most beautiful love song that has ever been written. We have before us in the pages of Scripture. And it genuinely works. 
And part of the reason this song works so well is that the players in it are so authentic, so genuine. As we compare this song to Jesus, our groom, and ourselves as His bride, both collectively in the church, but also individually, we see how authentic this song really is, this unfailing, faithful love of the Beloved. Contrasted with the self-doubting, sometimes fearful, often fickle lover in his bride. And I read this and I think, wow. Jesus not only nails this perfect picture of himself, but he nails us as well. Because we are so like the bride. What's interesting in the song, and I want to point something out, uh, You might not catch it otherwise, but it takes her some time to realize the real beauty of their love. What makes this love and the love that we have with Jesus so absolutely remarkable is something that the bride herself figures out through the song, and it comes out in three different statements she makes during the song. The first one we've already seen. All three are familiar, but you might not even have noticed the difference in them. The first one she sings in Song uh, Song of Songs chapter 2, verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine, and I am His. My beloved is mine, and I am His. And that is how we begin, so often, our walk with Jesus Christ. We claim Him as our own. That's where it starts, isn't it? Haven't Most of you, can you think back when you gave your life to Jesus, you said, He's mine. I receive Him as my Lord and my Savior. I claim His Lordship over me. My beloved is mine. And I am His. But as the relationship progresses, something changes. Listen to her vocabulary when she sings in chapter 6, verse 3. Now instead of, my beloved is mine and I am His, she says, I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. She flips the two. Now suddenly, it's not that she claims Him, but she realizes He claimed her first. And then she responded. And as we mature in our faith walk with Jesus, we start to see that. That, wow, I thought I claimed Him in the first place. I didn't. He claimed me. He came after me. I didn't even realize it, but suddenly I look and say, there He is, coming after me, loving me. He claimed me, and then I claimed Him in response. We see the bride maturing as she can see this, as she makes that statement. But the song matures to a far deeper level even than that. The verse we have been repeating. Finally, in chapter 7, verse 10, she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And suddenly, in the full maturity of love, we realize our love relationship with Jesus is entirely dependent upon him. I mean, we almost don't even have any claim whatsoever. My beloved, I I am his. And His desire is for me. And the sum total of my relationship with Jesus, listen to me carefully here, the sum total of my relationship with Jesus does not depend on me one iota. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with what I bring to the table, with how precious I am or even I become in Him. It is 100% Jesus in love with me, His desire for me. And Paul says as much, Romans 11.36, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now that, that sounds as if 
If it's all Jesus, if He's 100% and I'm, you know, nothing's dependent on me, well then I'm kind of free to roam and wonder and flirt and do whatever, right? Not if you realize the love He has for you. When we get that, when we really get His passion for us, we will be so in awe of His love, we will truly want nothing else. And unfortunately, as long as we are ever allured or attracted to anything else, we haven't quite gotten there. Praise God that He is faithful and He is patient. But that's the journey that we're on. I claimed Him. No, actually I didn't. He claimed me. No, actually, it's all Him. And she progresses through the whole song in that very way. This is no silly little love song. The Song of Songs gives a genuine view of the steady progression of faith growing into a mature love. This is where Jesus is drawing each and every one of us. It's where He wants us to land. Now, in the first canticle, and you remember this this song called the canticles often, is made up of smaller songs, little songs that are called canticles. So the first one, we witness the wooing and the blossoming of this love. In the second canticle, we heard the groom's invitation and the bride's trepidation. And you know, it's interesting, that often happens in an engagement. One or the other, they commit... You know, to to a marriage, and as the engagement continues, one or the other gets some cold feet, gets a little nervous, gets a little worrisome, the trepidation. And sometimes we have that with Jesus, don't we? Gave my life to Him, I'm following Him as a believer, but but man, some things are not going the way I wanted them to go. Or boy, there's some other things over here that are enticing or and attractive and alluring, and I find myself drawn away a bit. Well, we see that in the second canticle as the bride puts him off, but he. He draws her back. In the third canticle, last week we looked at the wedding march and, and oh, the wedding night and the passion and the romance of it all and, and it, just, it just drips with the romantic. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. And now in the fourth canticle, you need to notice something right off the bat. The bride is no longer a bride. She is now a wife. In fact, note this, the last time she's called a bride is in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. He will not call her a bride again after that. The rest of the song, he will call her other things. He'll, he'll refer to her as my sister, my darling, my, my dove, my perfect one, as he does in chapter 5, verse 2. He gives her other names, terms of endearments and love and affection, but He will not call her a bride again because by the time we open up to this fourth canticle beginning in the second verse of chapter 5, the marriage is a done deal. Remember last week we looked at the wedding night, which implies that the wedding happened prior to the wedding night. Sometimes I'll be watching movies with my kids and... Uh, something will be implied that a couple spent the night together. And, and I always tell my kids, they, they didn't have time to add the wedding part in the film, but that actually happened before this you know, other. And our country, our culture, our, our world has just, we've so flipped that upside down. It's so unfortunate that, that the wedding night often comes before the wedding, when the intention of the Lord is the glorious celebration, the commitment, the vows... And then in the security of that comes the marriage to follow. The relationship, a secure relationship. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. By the way, righteous acts that He produces in us, that He does through us. 
He is again the one at work in this relationship. And all we need to do our part is to open our hearts to Him and allow Him to do what He desires to do. So we are now in the place in the song where the bride is not the bride, the bride is the wife. Now let me head Spencer off by answering this question ahead of time. In the Song of Songs, if the bride is now suddenly the wife, doesn't that picture leave us, the church, out? Because we're the bride. We're the betrothed of the Lord. The marriage feast of the Lamb has yet to happen. Therefore, if we're making this comparison all the way through and suddenly now they're married, (laughs) that's not us anymore, right? Wrong. We are still very much in the picture here. We are the bride of Christ. Yes, true. The marriage of the Lamb is yet future. Well, then how can the rest of the song and even the intimacy of a marriage relationship apply to the church or apply to me personally today before the marriage of the Lamb has come? And I'll answer it simply because the marriage is secure. The marriage is secure. What do you mean? It's a done deal. It's not not going to happen. Jesus will not fail in showing up for the wedding. And it is His intention and His purpose and His desire to be sure that you're there as well. We don't even have to sing, get me to the church on time, because He's going to do it. And it is such an absolutely sure thing that, gang, guess what? We can refer to ourselves as the wife as well as the bride. It is so absolutely certain That's called a proleptic statement, by the way. I haven't used that word in a long time. A proleptic phrase or statement. A proleptic statement. That word, it's a great word. It means something that is so certain to happen, it's spoken of as if it's already happened. An absolute, done deal, a sure thing. And I'll give you my favorite example of a proleptic phrase in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Which tells us, God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And that's us right now, here and in this place. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He seated us, past tense, In the heavenly places with Jesus. Past tense. It's already happened. Now look around. Are you seated in a heavenly place? No, it's a barn. Folding chairs. I hope that the chairs in heaven are not like these. But we're already there. It's already done. It is so absolutely certain that the marriage feast will happen that the Lord refers to it as if it's already happened. And so, yes, as we continue on in the Song of Songs, we are still in the position of not just the betrothed, but the wife of Jesus the husband. And the relationship continues in a beautiful way. And I believe, by the way, we can function that way as the church in the world today. Not just the pure, spotless bride waiting, but the wife living with and in intimate relationship with Jesus, even until He comes. I think He wants us to. You know, the sad thing is that in our world today, human engagements and marriages are not the best example of things that are sure things. We all know that. 
According to the United States Census Bureau, for every 10 marriages, there are 5 divorces. And you may have heard that before. That's not 50%, by the way, if you do the statistics. But it is for every 10 people that get married, or for 10 every, every 10 marriages that happen, there will be 5 divorces in the same span of time. Understanding that, what really shocked me was looking at that statistic again today and realizing that number has been stable for the last 30 years. We have adjusted to it. This is just the way it is. Marriage in America is not something you can definitely count on. Give it a good shot. Give it the old college try. But you can't really count on it. So we come to Scripture with this American cultural idea of marriage, which is not necessarily a sure thing. And we come to Scripture and we read about the beautiful marriage and we think, yeah, but but is marriage really a, a sure thing? It is with Jesus, who is 100%, even when we are at 1% or 0, when we have nothing to give. He is 100% in the relationship. His love is a sure thing. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's who He is. It's His very character. So understanding that, we come back to this, now the fourth canticle in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, and we begin tonight. And the bride is singing. She will sing all the way down through verse 8. This is all the bride singing. And she says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night, he says to her. And she's recounting this as she sings. And then she responds, I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How how can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. What is going on here? The marriage has happened. The wedding night is secure. This is now at some point after that. Some time has passed. Time has gone on since we finished the last canticle. There's some space in there. What is she singing about? The fourth canticle could easily be called The Nightmare of the Sleepy Wife. The Nightmare of the Sleepy Wife, or I like to call it just simply Spousal Drowsal. Okay? <laughs> Remember in chapter 3 that the dreamy bride put off her groom. Okay, They were betrothed, and he came in the night singing, Hey, let's dance on the hills, let's run, let's have some fun. And she says, No, we'll wait. Maybe later. You know... Check back at another time, and then when she realizes she wants to be with him, he's not available to her. And she goes looking for him. And eventually she finds the watchman, and she tells them, and and it seems that they actually help her find him, and he finds her, and they embrace, and she remains in that embrace. He holds her. 
He tells the daughters of Jerusalem at that point, she's swooning in his arms and he tells them, don't wake her. <laughs> Let her stay here. Let her stay here as long as she wants. But now, now it happens again, but it's not just a bad dream. It's not just a confusing evening for her. It is a nightmare. Let's follow it through. Go back to verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Now that might sound a little strange. In fact, going back to Solomon's day, to hear that sung in the song, someone might wonder, well, why is the husband outside? And the wife's inside, and she's locked the door on him. And husbands and wives, if that's ever happened, let's talk about that another time. Why is he out there? You know, is he in the doghouse for the night? I mean, what what happened? And the reality is that we, with hindsight, can look back and we see this as a perfect picture of exactly what Jesus does. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Interesting. That's what Jesus does. He's never invasive. He never comes barging in. He's never presumptuous. Jesus is opportunity knocking. (laughs) He's always there at the door knocking. And you Bible students know, the context of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, is not Jesus knocking on the door of the unrepentant heart of the sinner. Although it's often used that way, Revelation 3.20, go read it. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. Door of the church. Interesting. The church has closed the door. Door's locked. The church is drowsing. And Jesus comes knocking. And His voice is heard. How often does He stand knocking at the door of the church? Or the door of your heart? Or my heart? Can you think of or recognize those times when He's knocking? He's not going to force Himself on you. But He wants to be with you. Do you open the door to Him? Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. I mean, does this guy love her or what? For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. (laughs) The dew of Israel can be heavy. Very heavy and thick. And apparently, He's been outside in the night. He's been outside all night long. Why? Why? Why is she in there sleeping and he's outside wide awake? Well, we know in Psalm 121 verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So even though we might become drowsy, he never sleeps. He never loses focus. He is always keeping watch, interceding, wakeful with his eye. We're the ones who drop off in drowsiness. Verse 3, I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? She's saying, I'm in for the night, babe. (laughs) You know, no more going out for me. I'm showered, I'm pajamaed, I'm slippered, I'm cozy. And you want me to open the door to your dewy head? Why does this keep happening? Why again in the song do we see them estranged? He comes asking and she keeps putting off. Why does she keep falling asleep? This is now the second time. She gets into this dreamy state. And then she wakes up to his absence. Gang, the indication is not that she doesn't love him as much as she's taking him for granted. He'll be there when I need him. When I wake up, when I'm rested, when I'm ready, he'll be there. 
She presumes. And gang, presumption in our spiritual lives leads us to laziness. And laziness to spousal drowsal. Makes us sleepy. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, Proverbs 19.15, Laziness casts into a deep sleep. You want to get something done, ask a busy person. You know the old saying. But laziness, putting off Christ, saying, not tonight, Jesus. Not today, Lord. Perhaps another time. It causes us to become kind of drowsy in our faith. Remember, Jesus had the apostles there in the garden with Him. He was praying on the most devastating, horrifying, terrifying night of His life. And He said, keep watch, will you guys? I'm going to go pray. And when He comes back, they're out cold. They're all sound asleep. Now, it's been an emotional time for them. The whole week has. And that night, all the things that He shared with them and the the indication of death and dying and, and, and trouble, and He's leaving them. And what is this all about? So they're emotionally spent. Then they fall asleep. And Jesus wakes them. You remember what He says? Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Laziness, sleepiness, drowsiness in our faith, it leads us into temptation. And things begin to happen we don't want to have happen. He said the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak when the apostles were falling asleep on their watch. And gang, we've been falling asleep ever since. And please don't take this wrong. I'm not trying to cast guilt on anyone else. I'm reading this and I'm thinking about my own life and my own drowsiness and how often that happens, how easily it happens. And how passionate Jesus is and He's continuing to knock. He keeps coming back time and time again, even when I put Him off. I get this this picture of a sleeping spouse and it reminds me of the church in Sardis. Sardis, which is uh, in the churches to the uh, the Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, he's, Jesus sends seven churches, seven letters to seven churches. And the fifth church, the church called Sardis, is apparently sound asleep, sleeping on their post, drowsy. Sardis, which he says, Revelation 3, 2, wake up, wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. The best way to fall asleep in Christ is to stop doing. Don't misunderstand. We need to have rest. We need to have Shabbat, Sabbath, in Jesus. But we don't stop pursuing Jesus. And we don't stop doing the things that our hearts are compelled to do by His love. Because when we stop... When we put off, we get sleepy. I mentioned Jesus' letter to Sardis because it speaks directly to the drowsiness that we see so rampant in today's denominations. And I talk about this a lot, and I mean no offense, truly, but there is a presumptive laziness that is going on in denominational Christianity. And in emergent Christianity, a laziness there, a presumption that says Jesus will always be around. The standards of faith, they're, they're, you know, mutable. They're changeable. We don't have to worry so much about all, you know, the nitpicky little standards of Scripture, the doctrine, the teaching. Jesus will be around, right? And the church is becoming increasingly lax when it comes to just biblical values. The church is taking the standards of the world and allowing those to dictate the standards of the church. 
We have this politically correct word system. Words like tolerance. I've got to learn to be tolerant. Or acceptance. Or open-mindedness. But in truth, it's spiritual sleepiness and moral laziness. That's all it is. Now you might say, Rick, who are you to judge the church? And my answer is one who loves the church. My heart is broken when I see what's going on in the church today. When I'm made aware of all the things happening. And I'm not going to go into a litany of things. I've shared many times things going on. I've asked you to pray about things going on. But we see this happening, and particularly in denominational Christianity, where there's a long and rich tradition and history of biblical values that are being let go. Why? Because the Word is no longer taught. And the Spirit is shunned. And so churches are just getting drowsy. But we need to love the church. And here's the other side of it. When we consider, when we see the things going on in the news and and decisions made on denominational boards and in other churches and, and, and it's heartbreaking, we need to not judge as far as condemning, but we need to judge as far as prayer and intercession and love for all of Christ's body. We need to love like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, Both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, from which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus says, I'm going to be right there with them. I'm going to call them my brothers, my sisters. Isn't that interesting? He calls the bride my sister, my darling. His wife, no longer the bride. He still calls her my sister, that term of endearment in a Hebrew marriage. In essence, Jesus says this about the church. These are my peeps. (laughs) They're mine. And I think about that, and I'm just another peep in the larger church. One of Jesus' people, part of the larger church. And I have to confess and realize I spent years and years drowsy in the church myself. And so who am I... To judge only one who would say we need to be praying for the church of God in this world. We need to be praying for the church not to bend a knee to the idols of the world, but to stand strong and firm in Jesus and in His Spirit and in His Word to the very last day. And we as a church fellowship here in this little barn have an opportunity to be that kind of church, to be that kind of example. A church that will not bend to the dictates of the immoral world. But we will stand firm and true and strong in the truth, but we will do so in love. We will speak out against things that are immoral, but we will speak out for the sake of the love of Jesus Christ. And in that way, we judge, and yet we do so lovingly. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Wake up, Jesus says. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Remember, Jesus gave another parable about what would happen when the church got drowsy. He said in Matthew 13, 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And they came back and they saw this. Now there are tares growing up with wheat and tares look like wheat. These weeds grow up looking like wheat, but they produce no fruit. What do we do with this? They say to the Master, He says, let them grow up together, and then in the end we'll separate it out. 
But when do the tares enter into the field of wheat, which is the church? When does that happen? When the watchmen are asleep. And if we sleep, that's when the tares come. When the church gets sleepy. So who will sound the alarm? Will you? Will you keep your eyes open? I had a conversation just Monday with a dear sister who's on a board of an organization, not a Christian organization, but an organization founded on Christian principles. And in this organization, founded on Christian principles, every meeting is always open with a reading from the Bible, from Scripture. And it's always closed with a prayer. Because that's the way it's always been done. But now a survey is being handed out in this one-time Christian organization saying, should we be open to to reading Scripture from other so-called holy books when we start? Should we perhaps allow different people of different belief systems to offer the closing prayer? And she asked me, what do I do with this? I mean, I want to stay there and be an example, but, but at the same time, I'm not sure what to do. Who's going to sound the alarm? Who's going to stand up and say, wake up! Wake up! We will not do these things. We will. You want to call me intolerant? Fine. You want to call me narrow-minded? The way is narrow. But I do it out of love. I do it for the sake of love. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord said, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. If we love this world like God loved this world, we will sound the alarm because the day is coming. And it matters. It matters what people believe. Where are we? Verse 4. <laughs> She says, My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. But don't misunderstand that. It's not what you might think. It's not that kind of arousal. It's not that she sees her hand and goes, or sees his hand and goes, Oh, there he is. No, the word arousal there, chama in the Hebrew, literally means disquieted, mournful, or pitying. What is she saying? I saw his hand. I heard him calling out, drenched with you know the dew of the night, and I felt sorry for him. That's why she got out of bed. That's why she goes to the door. She feels sorry for him. She has pity in her heart. You ever do something for Jesus because you feel sorry for him? You ever do something for the Lord because there's a twinge of guilt that, eh, well, he kind of God needs me to do this. You don't really want to. But perhaps you feel some, some pity there. That's why she goes to the door, because she feels sorry for him. And after all, he's out there in the dripping wet and cold and dewy night. Listen, Jesus does not want to arouse your pity. He wants to arouse your passion. He doesn't want us doing things out of guilt. Or doing things because we think, oh, the Lord needs me to be there. Just got to be there. You know, it's a Jesus thing. <laughs> Don't do it for the wrong reasons. Jesus was on the way to the cross. And following Him, Luke 23 tells us there was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting Him. And Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me. You weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, He says, The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, Cover us! They will say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, Cover us! When will they say that? 
Ladies, those of you who are in the Revelation study, at the end of Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, that's exactly what they say. They describe it as the wrath of the Lamb. When the people begin to say, let the mountains fall on us, let the hills cover us. Because that day is coming. And Jesus says, don't pity me. Don't do anything out of pity for me. Don't be motivated by sorrow for Jesus. Let your motivation be two things. Passion for Christ and sorrow for the lost. And if we have that dual motivation, we will be on the move for Jesus Christ. Verse 5. I arose, remember, in pity. She arose. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. What's this about? Listen. She grabs the door handle and it's covered with liquid myrrh. It's not that her hands were dripping as she walked across the room to open the door. It's when she got there, she grabs the handle. The Hebrew is very specific here. She takes hold of the handle and draws back and looks. And her hand is now dripping with myrrh because there was myrrh on the handle. How did myrrh get on the handle? He put it there when he tried to open the door. Which is interesting to me. I mean, yeah, it's it's a romantical, sweet-smelling thing. Liquid myrrh is the richest, sweetest kind of myrrh. The most pure. And in the dripping myrrh, we once again see His passion for her. It's the sweet and precious scent of sacrifice. Myrrh, that smell of sacrifice, the burial spice we've talked about several times already in this song, is now all over the door handle. She grabs hold, and what does she have? A reminder of the sacrifice of her love. Verse 6 going on, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away. And had gone. This is so telling. (laughs) She says, My heart went out to him as he spoke. When I heard his voice, she says, My heart went out to him. You know what the word heart is there? It is not what you think. Her heart did not go out to him. Our translation is not great. The word is not heart. The word is not even spirit. The word in the Hebrew is nefesh, it is soul. My soul went out to him as he spoke. Her soul went out to him. I have written here in my Bible, she liked what she heard. How often are we in the same way? We like what we hear. My soul's right there. A good Bible study tonight, Pastor. Yeah, I had a great, great meeting time when we opened up the Word. I liked what I heard. It's not going to change my life, but I liked what I heard. Not going to move me passionately to do anything for Jesus, but I liked what I heard. My ears were tickled. That was good stuff. They got me out of bed, but I was still moving a little too slow for him. She liked what she heard, but her response was still lazy. James says in James 1.22, Prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A hearer may be touched in the soul, but a doer is always touched in the heart. A doer of the Word is someone who hears the Word spoken by Jesus and is touched passionately in spirit and moves out on that. But a hearer of the Word is just someone who likes what they hear. You can sit in church your entire life and like what you hear and never act on it. And think you're saved and perhaps not even be saved. I like hearing about Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you walk with Him? Do you love Him passionately like He loves you? And she says, I searched for him, but I did not find him. Well, of course not. It was soul stuff. It wasn't spirit stuff. I called him, but he did not answer me. 
Too late. He's gone, lady. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Doesn't He love her? Have you ever in your life asked the question, Jesus, where are you? Why are you so quiet? And I think you know the answer. And it's because absence makes the heart grow fonder. And Jesus knows exactly where our hearts are. And there are times in our lives when we need for Him not to answer. You understand what I'm saying? We need to experience that sense of absence. Oh, He's not absent. He's still there. But He allows us to think that He's not. That we might realize a sense of longing for Him. Then we might truly want to be where He is. It's the old saying, if the Lord seems far away, guess who moved? He never leaves. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. But when I distance myself from Jesus, when I put Him off, when I presume that He'll always be around no matter what I do, that's when He gives me all the room I need to miss Him. It worked on Cheryl. Have I told you this before? We were seeing each other uh, summer after our senior year of high school. And um, and she was kind of putting me off. I'm like, you have no idea what you're about to lose here. <laughs> and she was busy and other things. And so I thought, you know, I, I, and truly at that time in my life, I, I was just kind of saying, Lord, whatever, if... if if she's someone you want me to be with or near, great. If not, that's fine. So I backed off. I stopped calling her. I wasn't mean about it. I just figured she needs her space. And like two and a half, three weeks went by, and all of a sudden she showed up at my work one day, just out of the blue. Hi! <laughs> and she hasn't left my side since. So you can see how it works. No, this is what Jesus does. And there are times, and if you're sitting there going, I haven't heard from him in a while or He seems distant from me, perhaps that's exactly what you need. Perhaps He's waiting for your heart to readjust and to long for His presence. To just long for Him such that nothing else will fill that void. And that's where the wife is at. But gang, sometimes that kind of estrangement can get really scary and that's what happens to her. Verse 7. Interesting verse. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. This is absolutely shocking. We identified the watchmen earlier on, perhaps, as those who keep watch, those who shepherd, those who guard the city, and by extension to the application to the church, perhaps leadership in the church. And I hit this verse and I went, wow! What do we do with that? The watchmen are now striking the wife? And then I thought, oh, well, I guess that does happen from time to time. First of all, understand, these same watchmen who have been helpful earlier in the song, they are truly now wounding her. And the guards are tearing off her shawl, and she's running through the night, and she's crying out now to the daughters of Jerusalem, verse 8, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. If you see him, she says, tell him, I'm dying without him. I need to be with him. My heart is aching for him. She cries out, I am sick to my heart without Him. 
But why would the watchman strike and wound her? Well, interesting, this is the wife of the king. What is the wife of the king doing running around the streets of Jerusalem in the dark of night with a shawl? That word for shawl there, it's radid in the Hebrew. It's a thin wrap. It's an outer robe. It's not a veil. Some translations say veil. That's not correct. It's not a prayer shawl. It's, it's simply just a shawl, a wrap that if you're rushing out the door, you might grab in the last minute so that if it's cold, you've got something. And they're grabbing a hold of that and they're trying to figure out who she is. It's dark. They don't know. I'm reading into it a bit. I understand. I don't think they know it's the wife of the king or they would not dare treat her this way. But they're taking her as a criminal or as a danger or a threat. This person running through the streets, crying out, looking for this guy. And what's interesting is perhaps, perhaps the way it's written this way is to indicate at some level that she is to blame for the estrangement. That she's pulled herself away. How often do you note that in church situations when someone distances themselves from the church, and test this in your own heart, if you've ever distanced yourself from the church, was there not a time where you felt like the church was being mean to you? You As we kind of self-justify not being engaged in that. And sometimes the church is mean. Sometimes the watchmen do strike. Sometimes church people who should be watching out for each other wound those who have become distant to Jesus instead of loving them like Jesus loves. Sometimes that's just the way it seems, you know, that that perhaps someone who is no longer faithful, well, they've left the church. They're not with us anymore. Sometimes they come off as a threat. And things are said or done that wound or strike. Paul says in Romans 14.1, Now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So the watchmen are kind of failing on their post here. They're trying to protect the city. They may be wanting to protect the church, but in doing so, they're wounding this estranged wife. Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So let's just take care. And especially shepherds and church leadership. Let's take care or anyone in any ministry leadership not to wound the weak, not to wound the faithless, not to wound the estranged among us, but to be about the business of helping them come back to Christ. Now in verse 8 again, she she calls out to the daughters of Jerusalem for help. And in verse 9, they ask her to describe her beloved. They say, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that you thus adjure us? And as the chapter continues and concludes verses 10 through 16, she's going to describe her beloved. She'll describe him beautifully and magnificently. And then in chapter 6, the chorus is helping her to find him. And she realizes that he's gone down to the garden and she hooks up with him there. 
And we're going to come back to this section on Sunday morning. I want to save it because there are some precious jewels in here that I want us all to share with the entire body. So we'll come back to it and check out a lesson on estrangement and reconciliation. That will be for Sunday. But for now, know this. She finds him. She ultimately comes out of the nightmare. She finds the one whom her heart loves. She starts singing. He starts singing to her. And he begins loving her. Watch this. He loves her as if she had never locked him out. He loves her as if she had never put him off or fallen asleep at all. Verse 4 of chapter 6. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling. As lovely as Jerusalem. As awesome as an army with banners. What is he saying? Listen, this is the same gal who would not open the door for him. It's the same one who wouldn't slip on the slippers and just walk over there and, and unhook the latch. Such is the faithfulness of Jesus. Such is the love of Christ that when she finds Him, when she falls headlong into His arms, He grabs her and He just starts talking about how amazing she is. He starts wooing her all over. He starts pouring out love for her. He looks right past the failure. And He says, You are as beautiful as Terza. What's Terza? It's a city up in the north of Jerusalem, or north of Israel. A beautiful city. The name Terza means favorable. You're favorable to me. You're as beautiful as that beautiful city. This city in the north for a time was the capital of four of Israel's kings. It was so beautiful. And they had that as their maze day. 1 Kings 15 and 16. You can look it up. Terza. He says, You are lovely as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Which means city or teaching of peace. You are your peace to me. Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, Zechariah 2, verse 8. Jerusalem, once called the perfection of beauty, Lamentations 2.15 tells us. And he says, you're like that. You are stunning. He even says, and I like this description. I've never used this with my wife. I may try it sometime. You are as awesome as an army with banners. That's a real man's way of loving his wife. You're like that cool scene in Lord of the Rings. You know when they were chopping off the heads of the orcs? That was that's you. And she goes, huh? <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying, you overwhelm me. You absolutely overwhelm me. You are to me in this moment as though an army is marching over the hill and I am caught completely off guard. You overwhelm me. Verse 5, turn your eyes away from me for they have confused me. What? He's, confu- He's stunned at her beauty. He's overwhelmed at her affection. He doesn't see a forlorn waif, a ravaged urchin. He sees, he sees his beautiful wife. And he is so glad to have her back. And that's exactly what happens when a fallen believer turns back to Jesus. He doesn't shake a finger. He doesn't say, well... I was wondering when you were going to come around. He just loves her. Verse 5, continuing, he says, Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Wait a minute, he's already sung this. 
And if you want to understand what is described in this part of the song, go back and listen to last Wednesday night's teaching. He sang this to her on their wedding night. Same exact words. What's he doing? I think he's saying in spite of her drowsy fickleness that he doesn't love her one iota less in this moment than he did right in the night of their wedding. My love for you is no different. See, we come to Jesus and we think it's got to be different. Beloved, I didn't come when you called. Beloved, I set you at a distance. Beloved, I blew it. And he sings, nothing has changed between us. I don't love you less. He draws her right back to the moment when he sang that to her on the wedding night and says, I love you exactly now as I did on the day we were married. I've said that to my wife. I love you as much today as as the day we were married. In fact, more. So I think that's why he's repeating this here. He's singing, you're as beautiful now as you were on the night we were wed. We need to hear that. Because I think the biggest barrier for a person returning to fellowship or returning to Jesus when they've wandered off, the biggest barrier for someone who's held Jesus at a distance is the fear that He's not going to really love them so much. And we wouldn't. You left me? Great. Wallow in it for a while. I might consider taking you back and forgiving you after you have had some pain over this because of what you put me through. You know? But not Jesus. He's just not that way. That's how we think. But Paul says, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Marvelous! She comes back to Him and He sees in her an army with banners conquering. Victorious! throws his arms around her and loves her every bit as much as he always has. What is she conquering when she comes back to him? She's conquering fear. She's conquering her own failures. She's conquering her sleepiness. She has come out of her drowsiness and she is wide awake in passionate love for him. And you see, she does love him. She really does love him. Don't you? Don't we? In those times in my life where I am sleepy or faithless, it's not because I don't love Him. I still love Him. It's just that my flesh is weak. My spirit desires Him. She gets sleepy and fickle and faithless. There's no excuse for that, but she comes running to Him. And so He catches her up in His loving brace again. As the fourth canticle ends, He now turns toward the daughter's of Jerusalem. He has sung to her. He's still holding her. He's still singing about her. But now, he turns to the daughters of Jerusalem and he sings in verse 8, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. Or literally, her mother's only. Now we know in the song, there's another little sister. 
but he's describing her as absolutely unique. There is nobody like her. She is the pure child of the one who bore her, he sings. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also. And they praised her saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn? She's maturing. She grows like the dawn. As beautiful as the full moon. As pure as the sun. As awesome as an army with banners. Now listen. I just have one more thing to tell you here. For now. This is a beautiful statement that I think could easily be made by the heavenly host when the church is raptured home. Listen to it again. Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners, the daughters of Jerusalem around, the queens, the concubines, all the maidens, they're all standing around and they are blown away by the beauty of her love, but they're more blown away by her beauty because He loves her so much. They're looking at her and they're saying, "This is we have never seen this before. What's going on here? Now think about this. We normally consider, when we talk about the rapture of the church, I think 99.999% of the time, I think of my experience. You know, we talk about, won't it be wonderful in that that day when we're caught up? What will it be like when we burst into heaven? We arrive and we get to look around and we see the awesome splendor of the throne room and the cherubim and all the angelic hosts singing and the elders and all those who have gone before and we see Jesus and and, and what will that be like? But what about the flip side? What will it be like in heaven when we arrive? What will their perspective be? What will the angels think as they see for the first time, listen, for the first time what grace looks like? 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, As to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, and here's the line to hear, things into which angels long to look. What are you saying, Peter? Angels don't fully grasp grace. Angels were created to worship God. Now we were too. But angels were created in heaven, in the presence of God. They didn't have to have faith. What is faith to an angel who sees God right before him? No need for faith. He's already there. What is grace to an angel who is made to be in the presence of God? And so Peter says, and this is marvelous, the angels have been watching the whole time. From creation to the final day. You see, this whole process of God is not just about your salvation and mine. It is to show His glory to all who exist. Which includes the angels. It's showing the angels. It's teaching them. They're getting a lesson on grace. They've been watching from day one. They saw Adam and Eve fall in the garden. And I'm sure there were a few of them who were saying, Mount up, boys. Time to take them out. What? We're not? No, what? 
You're going to go further with them? They heard about the flood. Oh, okay, good, good. Get out the rowboats. We're going to head down. No? Eight people are still going to... Okay, alright. They watched as God put on flesh. And they wondered about this. What's He doing? And walked the earth. And when Jesus went to the cross, what do you think they were thinking then? He said, I, I could call 12 legions right now and have them come down and protect me. And you know there had to be at least a few of those legions sitting there going, yeah, yeah, come on, we're ready. God says, nope, let him die. They watched the resurrection. They saw the church born. Suddenly, masses of people filled with the Spirit of God. Are you kidding me? We've never seen anything like this. They've watched for 2,000 years of earth's history as people have been filled with grace and responded to the love of Jesus. What do you think it's going to be like for the angels when we arrive somewhat stunned? (laughs) You know, we come walking into heaven. Look at that! Look at that! Check out the four faces of the cherubim! But you know what? Check it out. All four faces are going to be turning to check us out. Why? Because grace will have arrived in heaven. That's incredible. Who is this that grows like the dawn? It's us. As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. Who is this? It's not a fickle waif. It is a faithful wife. The darling one of the king. Father, teach us to embrace this truth that we are Your graced wife, that we are coming home to You, that we have a place secure, that we are seated, as it were, in the heavenly places even now. It is such a sure thing. The marriage is is spoken of as having happened because it is so sure to happen. And I just pray, Father, that in our betrothal period here on earth, that we would function as Your wife. And we would act like the faithful bride that You've called us to be. That we would not put You off. That we would not, in these last days, as time is waning, that we would not be sleepy. But we would be so filled with, as we said, Lord, passion for You and sorrow for the lost, that we would make use of every moment. And God, we look forward to that time. When we arrive in Heaven, we can't wait to experience that. But how wonderful, even if for a moment, to think that all the angelic host will be praising and glorifying You because of what You have done in us. Praise You, Lord Jesus, and it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Would you once again repeat after me, I am my beloved's and His desires for me. Amen.